Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of One Question with Pastor Adam. And I am Adam, and I'm pastor to believers and doubters, to unfaithful Christians and faithful atheists. And friends, Jesus wasn't afraid of questions, and neither are we here at One Question with Pastor Adam. And so all questions are on the table when it comes to faith and religion and spirituality and God. And um, hi, Amber, it's good to see you. And since since all questions are on the table, Melanie, we're going to talk about abortion. That's right. We're going to talk about it. Uh, because it's always uh, always a question, and so here we are. And uh, I, you know, wisdom wisdom tells me not to do this <laughs> because I have I have family members, uh, loved ones who are very passionate on all levels of this topic of abortion and uh you know um life sometimes you're just gonna make people angry in this life and uh i'm not i'm i'm with you melanie finally we're gonna talk about it (laughs) so um here we go first i want you to know that um as a pastor i have um i have sat with this question i have sat with women, especially I should say as a male pastor, um, because that's an element in this as well. Um, I have have sat with women making this decision. Uh, I have had people that I love uh, make this decision. I've had women that I love make this decision to get an abortion. And I want you to know, and I want to say right off the bat, in my experience as a pastor, uh, that there is enough shame around this topic, and I am not here to shame anyone for getting an abortion. I want you to know that God loves you. Uh, I love you. I've sat and said, I love you. I'm with you on this. Uh, And um, that's the first thing that I want to say uh, is that you are loved. Um, So that's that's where I'm going to start off. Uh, Amber says, I used to be staunchly pro-life, but have since switched positions on it. I'm excited to hear you speak about this. (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm glad, Amber. I'm glad. We'll see. We'll see uh, what happens. First, I want to I want to start off what I want to say to you with uh, with a little bit of history. We're going to get into the Bible, we're going to get into a little science, and we're going to get into ethical questions that I have. But first, I want to do a little bit of history because I find this to be fascinating, that the history of evangelicals when it comes to the issue, the topic of abortion, because here is part of the history of it. Did you know that evangelical Christians, particularly Southern Baptist, the Southern Baptist Coalition, affirmed Roe versus Wade in the 1970s, 1971, 1974, and 1976. 
the Southern Baptist Coalition, the main evangelical group in America, affirmed Roe versus Wade. Isn't that really interesting? Uh, why did they do that? Well, a couple of reasons. As we're going to find out a little later, the Bible doesn't say anything about the practice of abortion. As much as Christians, evangelicals today talk about abortion, you would think that there was a clear law that said something like thou shalt not have an abortion because abortion was a practice in the ancient world. But there's no law in the Bible that says thou shalt not have an abortion. That's one reason. The evangelicals, especially during this time, liked to say that they believed in the Bible as the word of God. Well, if the word of God is silent on this, on this issue and doesn't say anything particularly about it, then they weren't going to fight about this issue. Now, there was another reason as well, because they didn't want the federal government uh, telling them what they can and cannot do. <laughs> and this might have been a slippery slope. Um, if you start telling women what they can and cannot do with their bodies, well, then you might tell us what we can and cannot do uh, with ours and with with our guns and with all other kinds of things. So at the beginning, the Southern Baptist Coalition voted to affirm Roe versus Wade, uh, but then they changed. And it's a, you can Google this, it's a really interesting history. Uh, there have been books written about it. I think Randall Balmer wrote a book about this, fascinating stuff. Um, it, where did the, how did they get the change? Well, during around this same time, uh, Southern white evangelicals, uh, it was a time of desegregation. The Supreme Court said that you couldn't have all white schools anymore. And so uh, Southern white evangelicals were like, well, we want to keep our white schools. So we're going to create private schools for our white kids to go to. So they started creating white Christian, that not that so awful to say? White, I don't want to say it, white, white only Christian schools. What an oxymoron. Um, and the Supreme Court ended up saying, you can't do that because that's racist. You can't do that. So they took away their tax exempt policy. And this got during the time, the Southern white evangelical, Southern Baptists, all upset. And there's, because um, they were losing their power. So they were like, how do we get an issue? We can't be overtly racist anymore by creating white, doing things like creating white only schools, uh, because they're going to say that's, you can't do that. So we're going to still have dog whistles. We're going to still be not overtly racist, but have some covert racism here and there. Uh, and But what is our one issue going to be? Well, there's one guy emerged as, as the leader of this and got the Evan Southern Baptist Convention evangelicals to get behind one issue, uh, which became abortion. 
became their one issue. So you, you've heard of one issue voters who are just going to vote for abortion over and over again. This leads me to my second point that I want to make about the history in the United States of this. Did you know that the Supreme Court has been owned by conservative judges for the last 50 years, five zero, 50 years. Conservative judges have had a majority on the Supreme Court. And during that time, um, uh, I, during that time, a certain political party, <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> um, a certain political party has uh, promised to overturn Roe versus Wade on a federal level. Uh, that's your one issue, vote for us, we'll make it happen. Well, they've owned the Supreme Court for the last 50 years. And during that time, they have had moments, including in the last four years, where uh, they have owned the Supreme Court, the presidency, the House, and the Senate all at the same time. And they haven't done they haven't tried to overturn Roe versus Wade. So I, you gotta start asking and wondering if this is like a carrot that a particular party is holding in front of one issue voters saying, keep, keep voting for us, we're gonna, we're gonna do this, we're gonna, but keep voting for us. Um, they're not actually gonna do it because they want you to keep voting for them. So maybe it's time to change strategy. I would invite I would invite one issue voters to think of this. They want you to they're not going to they're not going to overturn Roe versus Wade. Maybe your one issue should change. One one reason, a major reason why many 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 women get abortions is because of economic hardships. Do you know how much it costs to to go hospital bills. Do you know how much hospital bills are to give birth? At least $10,000, at least $10,000. Now you add on to that pre-care, important pre-care, impo important post-care. You add on to that any issues that, uh, any, any health issues that may come forth, it can cost $30,000 or more to give birth in the United States. That's, that is, that is crippling. I mean, medical bills in the United States are already bad enough to give birth already puts you 10 to, already puts, puts a baby's family $10,000, at least $10,000 in the hole. If, of course, if they don't have like, um, healthcare, uh, $10,000 in the hole. Uh, we can do better than that. Like, I think that our one issue might, should probably change to providing universal healthcare to folks. Uh, especially if we're going to care, I'm going to get more to this later, care enough about, uh, somebody is what's in the womb as, care enough about it when it's outside of the womb as well, that's an issue. 
healthcare is an issue and it should be given to everyone universally. I'm not even talking about uh, universal basic income, although we should be talking about that too. When we're talking about economics and I mean, food, food stamps uh, uh, um, have, are often taken away. Um, what else? Uh, food during school food, school, schools need to be funded for, for their foods, uh, for health, for all of these things in their schools often get defunded. Um, those are not, th those are things that matter. Uh, oftentimes kids get their only meal at school. And that should tell us something about caring about human beings. We're really going to care about human beings. These should be no brainers. Can I get an amen in the comment section? Come on. <laughs> okay, so those are the two histories, like the, the movement from uh, the, the Southern Baptists had moving from uh, supporting Roe versus Wade to moving uh, to one issue voters and then 50 years and they've done nothing to overturn Roe versus Wade. Gotta change your strategy. I'm begging, like, think about changing your strategy. That's what I'm gonna say. So let's get into the Bible. What does the Bible actually say and what does it not say about the practice of abortion? Now, here's here's the thing that you need to know about the Bible. It's it's ambiguous. Uh, it's difficult to interpret. It's difficult to understand. Anybody who says, "I learned this in seminary," <laughs> you should know this. Anybody who said, "Oh, oh, the Bible clearly says this," our Bible professor would be like, "Oh yeah, well, what about this?" The Bible also says this. So anytime somebody says, well, the Bible clearly says this, this, and this, um, you should have questions come up in your mind. Um, like there's probably an alternative to it. Now, the, the interesting thing, and we're going to get to this, we're going to get to that a little bit. The interesting thing about this, as I mentioned at the beginning, is that the Bible doesn't say anything about the practice of abortion. Why is that? That should be interesting to us. Why is that the case? Uh, it, abortion was a common practice in the ancient world. Um, why does it not say anything about the practice of abortion? Um, lots of different answers about this. Uh, but the Bible never says, thou shalt not have an abortion. Now, I'm going to get to uh, the conservative answer to that, which I think is actually a, a pretty good answer, but there are problems with it as well. Um, now, the Bible, although it doesn't talk about the practice of abortion, does have some stories that have influenced people in the way that they think about the practice of abortion. So you take a look at Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 25, for example. It says this, I'll just read it to you. When men fight and one of them pushes a pregnant woman and a miscarriage results, but no other misfortune ensues, the one responsible shall be fined as the woman's husband may exact from him the payment to be based on judges on a judge's reckoning. But if other misfortune ensues, the penalty shall be life for a life. Now this this is interesting, and if you Google this passage, um, I told you how the Bible is am 
ambiguous. This passage for many folk is ambiguous as well. There's a uh, Jewish doctor. I like to, from the Hebrew scriptures, I like to investigate what our Jewish siblings say about these passages and also what our Christian siblings say about them too. Uh, there's a Jewish doctor, you can Google him, Dr. Fred Rosner uh, wrote an article. Uh, you can just Google his name. Uh, and he says this about the passage, that uh, the basic idea is that uh, the, the fetus is not on the same level as the life of the woman. So if the woman... Uh, miscarries, and there's some debate about this, uh, if the woman, it could be miscarries, or if the woman uh, gives birth early to, um, to a live baby or to a, uh, to not a live baby, depending on how hard she's hit, right? Uh, it could have, it could have died in her womb. Um, either way, that uh, that fetus is in this passage not at the same level as the live woman who's alive. Uh, it says um, if she continues to live and no further damage uh, other than the loss of the fetus, then this is going to happen. So this passage in Numbers um, seems to be, or in Exodus, seems to be saying uh, that. And Fred, Dr. Fred Rosner says this about um, this passage. He says, the fetus in Jewish law is the title of his article. Uh, he says that there's even uh, that um, the Talmud and the Mishnah go along with what I have just told you, that the fetus is not at the same personhood, uh, the same type of life as the mother. Uh, the Talmud and the Mishnah uh, which are Jewish sources that talk about biblical laws, um, state that the fetus is not a person until it is born. Um, there's even a law in the Mishnah saying that if a pregnant woman is to be stoned to death, that you shouldn't wait for her to give birth. Uh, but she is, if she is in the process of giving birth, um, then you wait and then you stone her to death. <laughs> Isn't that fun? Um, no, it's awful. Uh, but this is this is all laws, ancient uh, Jewish laws that are related to this passage in Exodus that um, confirm what Fred Rosner says uh, is uh, Jewish history of this ancient law in the Hebrew text um, that treats the fetus not at the same level as the life of um, the uh, the woman who's pregnant. So um, another passage. I know there. Are, I I know there are a lot of um, comments. <laughs> I will get to them <laughs> later. Okay, need to stay focused. Okay. Um, there's uh, another passage in Numbers that frequently gets brought up to uh, Numbers chapter five. Really weird story. Um, it, it talks about if a it's, a, it's a law that says that if a husband is jealous of his wife and thinks that his wife has had an affair, that the husband in his jealousy is to take his wife to a priest 
and the priest is to get some holy water. It's a weird, really weird ritual. Get some holy water and some dust from the tabernacle floor and put them, make some kind of potion or concoction and dishevel the woman's hair and have her drink it. And if she is guilty of having this affair, um, it her there is a curse would enter into her bowels and make her womb discharge and her uterus drop. Weird, weird, weird stuff. Uh, but this, many people say, is um, like an act of abortion. It's uh, the, the fetus, um, the womb discharges. Uh, and if the woman is pregnant, then the pregnancy would discharge as well because it's in the womb. I'm not a scientist, but um, that's that's how I understand it. You could tell me if I'm wrong, um, nor am I a woman who's been pregnant. So this is often used. Now, now some people will say, oh, no, this is just about um, how the woman is not going to be able to give birth into the future because her uterus drops. Well, what happens if her if she's already pregnant? What if she's pregnant now and her uterus drops? That's that's what I think the story is saying. And it seems to relate to abortion. It's I'm not it's right. I okay. So <laughs> um many now here's where here's where uh conservatives will bring an argument against abortion. And it might be their best, it might be their best case. I don't know. Um, but they'll say uh, that the Bible, while it doesn't say thou shalt not have an abortion, it does say thou shalt not kill. Um, and the problem with that is that the Bible is not consistent with this commandment. Um, the Bible, and even if you want to, some, some past, some, uh, some will interpret uh, it as thou shalt not kill, others will interpret it as thou shalt not murder. Um, either way, the Bible is problematic with this commandment. And I'm going to bring up some stories to you in the Bible that are about killing, that all, that are about murdering, um, to show you how troublesome uh, this is and how you it's hard it's it's a difficult argument to say to base this on to base anything off of thou shalt not kill strictly from the bible um so here are some stories right after moses gets this is the i believe it's the fifth commandment um thou shalt not kill it might be the sixth uh after moses gets this commandment, one of the Ten Commandments, he comes down the mountain and sees some of the Hebrew people worshiping a golden calf. And what does Moses do? He just receives this commandment, thou shall not kill. And what does he do? He goes and he kills people. He kills them. Ah. So apparently there are times when you're allowed to kill you're, you're allowed to not follow this commandment. Here's, here's another one. Um, 
in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 to 21, it says that if you have a rebellious son, that you are to take that son to the center of the town, gather up all of the people of the town, uh, and stone your rebellious son and kill him. Thou shalt not kill. I wish somebody would have told them, thou shalt not kill. But this is a law that comes after thou shalt not kill. Now, if you are a man and you are watching this, um, I think it's safe to say that you and I, had this law continued, wouldn't be here. I had rebellious moments in my life. And if my parents had decided that I had gone too far in my teenage years, they could have taken me to the center of the city and stoned me to death. Fortunately, um, our my Jewish friends tell me that there's there's not a lot of evidence that they that they use this law, which tells you something about the Jewish mind when it comes to these laws. Because as Christians, I can as a Christian pastor, I can bring up these laws and I can say, oh, look how awful the Old Testament is. Uh, but our Jewish friends have been arguing and debating with these laws for 3,000, 2,500 years at least. And they're like, yeah, the law says we should take our rebellious son out into the center of the city and stone him to death, but we're not going to do that because <laughs> there'd be no men left. So the Jewish mind, as I'm going through these stories, are always arguing with them. So, so please don't think this is anti, anti-Jewish um, or an, even anti-Hebrew Bible or anti-Old Testament. The Old Testament has should be rated R at least because of these stories, NC seventeen, whatever. But there are horrific stories in the Bible. I'm going to get to another one here when the Israelites are moving into the Promised Land. Uh, they come to some Canaanite villages. And they're told, kill all the boys. This is after Moses gets thou shalt not kill. Now the boys, now they're, everything up until now, some people might be able to say, uh, well, the rebellious son is not innocent. <laughs> if that makes you feel better about killing rebellious, stoning them to death, God bless you. Uh, they might be able to say, um, oh, uh, here's, here's the other story I was going to tell you. Uh, there's this prophet named Elisha, Elisha, and Elisha is leaving a town and the boys, there's some boys of the town who make fun of Elisha because he has a bald head. You can read about this in second Kings chapter two, by the way. Uh, so the boys make fun of him, uh, by calling him baldy, basically. <laughs> What boy hasn't done this, right? What boy hasn't teased, a uh, group of boys haven't teased uh, an older... I remember when I was a young teenager, probably 13, I was just getting off the bus uh, to go to my house. And one of my friends um, had been had had gotten off with me and 
feel bad about telling the story, but this is just how I identify with these kids. Uh, my friend started making fun of this guy who was driving his, his old beat up car by us. And it was making all kinds of horrible noises. And my friend started pointing his finger and laughing at the man and teasing him. And he got out and he started like yelling at us. And I was like, oh my gosh, this guy's going to come after us and beat us up. So we ended up running. <laughs> um, that's like these boys in this story with this prophet Elisha. They tease him because he's bald and he's leaving the city. And Elisha curses the boys in the name of the Lord, quote, in the name of the Lord. And do you know what happens next? Two she-bears come out of some forest and maul the boys and kill them. There are 42 boys who get killed because they tease this prophet Elisha. Thou shalt not kill, right? Somebody should have told Elisha that. Somebody should have told God that uh, so that the bears wouldn't have killed these kids. I'm telling you this because thou shalt not kill is, is, is not always followed in the scriptures. Now, you, you, some conservatives may be able to say, well, the boys deserved it uh, for teasing Elisha. Uh, the, the rebellious son deserved it because he was rebellious. And if he just stayed in line, uh, would have been better. Well, here you go. You want some more? Uh, no, you probably don't. I don't. I'm getting sick of this, but this is stuff that we have to deal with when it comes to this. So um, as, the, as the Hebrew people are entering into the promised land, they come to the towns and they kill the boys uh, in a town. Um, the boys are not said to have done anything wrong. They were just unlucky because they lived during a certain time in a certain place. Uh, in Judges chapter 11, there's a story about a judge, a leader named Jephthah, uh, who was leading the Hebrew people uh, during this time, the time of the judges, against the Ammonites, one of the enemies of Israel. Jephthah says, to God, the spirit of the Lord rests on Jephthah. And he says to God, listen, if you give me victory over the Ammonites, when I come back home, I will sacrifice with a burnt offering whoever comes out of my the door of my house. Jephthah, God is doesn't say anything in this story, by the way. Um, but Jephthah ends up winning the war against the Ammonites. He comes home, and who is the first person to come out of his door and greet him but his daughter, his own daughter? And he says his daughter is, like, so happy to see her dad, and he, he says, I'm so sorry my daughter, but I made this promise to God, and now I have to kill you. Thou shalt not kill? I wish somebody would have told Jephthah, because his daughter, for some, you know this is written by a man, his daughter, for some stupid reason, is like, well, okay, I guess, since you made the promise, can I just have two months to hang out with my friends 
uh, up in the mountains. And Jephthah says, yeah, her two months are over and she comes back and Jephthah makes this, sacrifices his daughter to God. God doesn't stop it. Why doesn't God stop it? We're not told. God is basically, as far as I can tell in the story, God is kind of absent. Um, whether or not Jephthah needed God's help to defeat the Ammonites, we don't know. Uh, God is distant from that story, other than Jephthah just saying, hey, if you do this, I'd, I'll kill, sacrifice to you. Thou shalt not kill. A lot of times in our lives and in the Bible, um, the Bible isn't always consistent with this. Um, so it's hard to use that as, as a reason. Um, uh, if we were more consistent with thou shalt not kill, I would be able to respect that argument more. But unfortunately, uh, this, even though the Bible is ambiguous about it, if we're going to use thou shalt not kill in this way, then I would like for us to, I would like for, for um, did you know that it's evangelicals who are one of the main reasons that we still have the death penalty in the United States? Thou shalt not kill. Um, uh, we know that a lot of, I hate putting it like, we know that a lot of people, innocent people get killed because of the death penalty. Nobody should be killed because of the death penalty, but we have it largely because Christians want to keep it. It's usually in the Bible belt where we continue to practice, continue to have that practice. Um, drone warfare kills innocent people. We know this, yet we continue to practice it. Why aren't we up in arms? If, we, if we're going to use thou shalt not kill in this way, why aren't we using it in every other way? So that's an argument for consistency, and um, I would be willing to take that argument more seriously if we were more consistent with it. Um, so those are my kind of reflections on the Bible. The New Testament uh, doesn't say anything about abortion, um, uh, and so there's that interesting fact. Um, do with it what you will. Uh, so, um, Jeremiah, that some, a lot of folks will say, well, Jeremiah uh, chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 says, uh, says that God knew Jeremiah in the womb. Uh, it says this, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This is, this is an interesting passage. Also, Psalm 139, uh, David, uh, David writes um, that God knit me in my mother's womb. That these are passages that are uh, often brought up, and it's, they're interesting passages, um, in part because God is speaking directly to Jeremiah on this. These are spoken per to particular people, uh, which I think matters in this. Uh, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, uh, many uh, people who are pro-choice uh, will say that God is speaking directly to Jeremiah or directly to David. And uh, I think that's a, that's a good argument. Uh, it's speaking to a particular person. God formed Jeremiah in the womb. Now, if, that, if we want to generalize that and say, well, God formed everyone in the womb, then, or, uh, then, I, then pro-choicers will say, well, we have to be consistent and continue it uh, because God also, the you here is to Jeremiah, God also uh, appointed you a prophet to the nations. Well, if we're consistent uh, in generalizing this, uh, if everybody is uh, formed in the womb by God, then everybody is a prophet to the nations, or is this specifically just about Jeremiah? So these are some of the questions that people bring up about uh, that Jeremiah passage uh, that frequently gets brought up, and also about the Psalm passage, where it's talking specifically about one person, David. Now, you could generalize this, uh, that so it's talking about everybody. Uh, you could do that, uh, but that is not uh, specifically in the text. It doesn't say God made everybody in the womb. You, you could interpret it that way. Uh, it's not specifically in the text. Um, so that's what I'd say about that one. Um, some other questions before I get to your comments. Uh, a lot of my friends say that science clearly says this. So when it comes to science and personhood, I have friends who are on different uh, ends of the spectrum saying clearly scientists are telling us this. And um, so that's why we should be one way or another. But just like the Bible is uh, difficult to interpret when it comes to this, apparently science is too. Uh, here, I'm going to read this to you. You can Google it if you want to read the whole thing. But um, there's a, I didn't get his name, but there's a professor of biology at uh, Swarthmore College who was giving a lecture uh, to his students on this topic. And he says this, uh, he says, Scott Gilbert is his name, Dr. Scott Gilbert uh, is a biologist. He says, I can say with absolute certainty that there's no consensus among scientists. Some scientists will say that personhood, be it begins at fertilization, where the zygote gets a new genome, where the sperm and the egg combine, their nuclear materials, which actually is a long process ending with a two cell stage. Some scientists will say it's at implantation where you get a pregnancy. Other scientists will say it's at day 14, uh, gas gastrulation. I'm not a scientist, <laughs> these words, gastrulation, where the embryo becomes an individual, where you can no longer form twins and triplets so that you have one embryo giving rise at two at best, only one adult. Some scientists will say it's at week 24 to 28 when you see the beginning of the human specific, here's another one, electroencephalogram. 
the logram and saying, if we're willing to say that death is the loss of the electroencephalogram, perhaps personhood is the acquisition of the encephalogram. Still others say it's at birth or during the uh, perinatal period where a successful birth is possible. So um, I, I'm not a scientist, um, but apparently it's science, the science of this is ambiguous too. Um, this, my final point is the ethical questions. And I'm sure that you have, you can come up, we could come up with so many more ethical questions. Um, but for me, I, I mentioned it a little earlier, the, eth the ethical question is if we're gonna fight so hard uh, for the life in the womb, why aren't we fighting so hard for the life outside of the womb? Why are there homeless people in the United States if life is sacred? Why are there homeless people when it's studies have shown that it's probably cheaper to house other human beings than it is to have them living on the streets? Why aren't we fighting for universal health care? Why are we putting people in debt? These are just a few of the ethical questions uh, that I have for this conversation as well. So um, once again, I, in this conversation that's often so heated, uh, I, I wanted to bring out the ambiguity in the Bible when it comes to this topic, because we generally think, oh, the Bible must say this or that. And it's much more ambiguous than that. Um, I recently read a book uh, by Richard Elliott Friedman and um, one of his colleagues, I forget her name, but it's called The Bible Now. And uh, it's a fantastic book, has sections on these hot top topic issues. And uh, some of what I've said comes uh, from their chapter on abortion. So the Bible Now uh, book that I would uh, recommend to you. So um, I know there are, whew, I know there are a lot of comments here. So <laughs> I'm, I'm a little hesitant to uh, uh, bring them up because um, this is such a um, hot button issue, but um, we'll bring them up. Um, oh, Judy, I'm sorry. you can't hear me. Ah, um, let's see. I think, <clears throat> yeah, Amber, um, the death penalty issue is super odd to me too. Um, uh, Riley, it's ambiguous. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, it's, it certainly is that. Yeah, a lot of like the complications, Riley, as you're saying, assuming the person who birthed the baby doesn't have long lasting uh, issues due to complications surrounding birth too. Yeah. Heather, uh, either way here in Canada, no cost to give birth and next to no cost for an abortion. Uh, Heather, I've heard 30,000 times that yes, <laughs> like it's whew, it's brutal what we do uh, to our fellow human beings just to give birth um, puts you in puts you in this debt. It's awful. Um, 
uh, Amber, yes, the uh, history of moving from moving to the one issue of abortion is rooted in racism, as pretty much everything in the United States is. Um, so that's tragic. Uh, it's awful. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Okay. Uh, Pro-life needs to be whole life, and it isn't. That's right, Mary. I'm with you on that. Um, Bill says on abortion, uh, they are saying abortion is murder. The biblical directive, thou shalt not kill, that's where they hang their hat. Yep. <clears throat> That's where they hang their hat. Yeah. There is all sorts of U.S. murder perpetrated by our military and countries that we sell weapons of mass destructions to, yet Republicans, anti-abortion purists say nothing about the sanctity of life on these issues. They don't have to get rid of Roe versus Wade to effectively keep women from obtaining the service. This has been occurring all uh, in all the red states. Yeah, that um, that brings up another point that I wanted to bring up with it, which is uh, the ethical uh, question surrounding this, another one. Um, amen to everything Bill just said. In countries where they have outlawed abortions, um, it, 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 it affects poor women the most. Uh, women who are uh, well-to-do, rich, are able to go to another place where they can um, get it done, get it done uh, by uh, professionals. Uh, women in poverty uh, are often uh, criminalized, uh, put into uh, prisons um, for getting an abortion. Um, so the justice issue of what Bill, I think, is getting at uh, in addition to what Bill has, has mentioned, um, uh, the red states um, doing this locally, uh, putting in anti-abortion locally, uh, affects poor women um, much at, at higher rates. So there's an there's again there's an there's an economic uh, um, injustice that's that's happening in in all of this as well. So, uh, Bill, thank you for that. And um, yeah, killing the war machine, um, pro-life, uh, what? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Let's see. Uh, uh, Amber says, Adam and Ezekiel's army, army bones both signs of life weren't considered alive without breath breathed into him or them. My understanding of Jewish text is that they do not consider the fetus alive until the breath is in their lungs. I think that's that's right, Amber. A lot of people bring that up too. Uh, like Adam is formed, um, comes alive when there's breath in him. I haven't I haven't read the Ezekiel and the dry bones, but that's a great connection. It's a great connection too, Amber. I like that a lot. Um, I, th I think that's where um, the Jewish doctor that I brought up um, gets gets some of what he's saying from Jewish history too. So Amber, I think you're right on, um, right on with that. The Dr. Fred Rosner, uh, his article, um, the nefesh, the soul, the human, uh, it, uh, isn't considered a person until it is born, according to Jewish, ancient Jewish laws. Now, uh, again, um, Jewish 
there's a lot of debates <laughs> among our, our Jewish siblings about all of this. That's that's one that's one strand um, that you can find. Um, yeah, Amber, you have done your homework on this. That's amazing. Uh, let's see, numbers five. Yep, yep. Uh, how frighteningly Amber says how frightening for a woman in that patriarchal society to know what they were forcing her to do without her consent. I don't know if I would be able to forgive my partner if they did this without my consent. I, you know, as I'm reading a lot of those stories, um, ancient cultural patriarchy um, comes through. Um, I'm going to do a, I'm on uh, I may I may turn this into a one question episode, but I've started a TikTok series um, called um, Christian Feminism, where I'm looking through the Bible uh, and finding ways that the Bible uh, subverts the patriarchal culture within uh, that it that it was within. Um, uh, I've learned a lot of this from our Jewish siblings. Um, and I think that's that's worth exploring too, because one of the things that I've I've noticed about the Bible, as horrific as some of these stories are, there's a lot of subverting of these stories within the Bible as well. Um, Thou shalt not kill might be one of the subversive elements of all the murdering of human beings that are in the Bible, <laughs> right? Um, so uh, thank you, Amber, for bringing up the all of the patriarchy that has been coming out of my mouth um, as I've been talking about this because it's there in the text as well. Um, it's only a woman uh, who is is brought. What if the woman uh, thinks that her husband has been, you know, off with the neighbor lady? Uh, does the woman have recourse to say, "Hey, I think my my husband's been doing this or that"? It doesn't say. Right um, when the woman is brought to Jesus because a group of religious leaders think that she uh, they've caught her in the act of adultery, well, why didn't they bring the man too? Right? Um, these are questions, <laughs> questions that I think are important to ask. So uh, Riley says, "Isn't there a story where God commanded the Israelites to kill off an entire race of people, including women, children, and all livestock?" Yes, that I mentioned that. Uh, I've got my notes here somewhere. Number, or uh, yeah, that's, that was another one of the numbers, or maybe that was the Exodus passage. Um, numbers thirty-one, seventeen to eighteen. Now, um, Riley, there are some folks who will. Uh, explain that. Oh, I'm not going to explain that those passages away, but there are some folks who will, pastors, who will explain stories like that away by just saying, well, that was, that was the time. It's what they did back then. And that's a partial truth. Uh, but if we are going to say, uh, if we're going to elevate the Bible uh, to a certain standard, um, uh, and say, uh, you know, I mean, there are a lot of people who criticize me. Well, if I when I say that by saying you shouldn't impose our own cultural standards on the ancient text, well, as Riley is bringing up, killing a whole race of people in the name of God, we can't criticize that. We should be able to criticize that. I think we can criticize that. I think the people who were being killed can criticize that. 
that's that's not good. Yeah, that may have been what people did back in the day, uh, but that's not good. I think I don't think God commanded them to kill those people. I think God is. Uh, I think that's a misunderstanding of the biblical writer about what God was doing in their lives. Um, there's this passage in from the prophet Hosea, who says that God desires mercy, not not sacrifice. Mercy. God wants us to live in merciful relationships with one another, including with those that we call our enemies, as Jesus teaches later. Um, so, um, yeah, it's awful. A lot of those stories are just awful. Uh, Melanie says, conservatives like to argue that scientists have proven that life starts at conception. However, Bill Nye has talked about how would you ever know that without science? So why talk like you know what's going on in the first place and use that as an argument against abortion. I, yeah, uh, the science, as we've seen, is am, is ambiguous about it. Um, so Amber says it's hard to get a consistent narrative out of scripture. Jesus was good. Well, Jesus was God come down to earth. And if he doesn't speak on it, even though abortion and infanticide was rampant in his culture, then I err on the side of caution, saying scripture is clear on abortion uh, being murder. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think that's one way to interpret it. I think that's one way to, to interpret it, yeah. Uh, Riley says, moreover, there's no clear definition of what constitutes life. Is it the heartbeat? It's a good question. What about people whose hearts are beating but have no discernible brain activity? What about miscarriages, stillbirth? There are often heartbeats in those situations, but the pregnancy isn't ultimately viable. All great questions. Um, let's see. Yeah, Amber, go up, you bald head. That was Elisha <laughs> teasing him for being bald. Um, let's see. Yeah. Jeff, Amber, you are Jephthah. Yeah, Jephthah uh, killed his own daughter. Yep, yep. These are all the stories that that I thought were important to bring up too. Um, uh, Riley says, my opinion is this, abortion is something that should only concern the person who is pregnant and their physician. We live in a wildly different culture now than anyone did in Jesus's day. Yep. Um, Okay. Uh, let's see. What? Um, it, yeah, Riley says if pro-life actually meant pro-life. Uh, yep. Okay. Um, okay. Amber, I can tell you've done a lot of research. Yes, it's awesome. <laughs> okay, um, friends, uh, a lot more obviously could be said, and I love going over your comments. Thank you for, thank you for being here. This is a tough uh, lot of um, different ideas and emotions and all the things on this uh, crucial topic. Um, so thank you for being here and having this conversation. Um,
Uh, Riley, I'm going to read this last comment that you say. I grew up uh, in conservative churches, too, I think is what you're saying. And when I had two miscarriages, I really splintered away from evangelicalism because I was completely abandoned by the church and left to suffer in isolation. I'm also bisexual, and I couldn't reconcile a supposedly loving God hating an intrinsic part of who I am. This church and its congregation is one of the only reasons I've even felt a little called back to faith. Um, thank you, Riley. Um, and thank you. Thank you, friends, for um, for your comments, for watching, for listening, if you're listening on the on the podcast. Um, uh, Again, I want to end the way that I began, uh, which is uh, I have women that I love and have walked with, uh, have had abortions, and um, I, the church has done so much to shame you, uh, as we have, as I have just read, um, and I want you to know that God loves you. Difficult decisions, tragic extremely difficult decisions uh, that this is. Um, God loves you. Um, I love you. The church loves you. And um, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at there with this, with this conversation. So uh, thank you, everyone. Yes, America, there is a podcast. It is called uh, One Question with Pastor Adam. You can listen to it uh, on the Raven Foundation uh, website, ravenfoundation.org is where it's housed. It's also housed uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. So you can uh, catch all of the episodes there. I think this is season two, uh, episode 15, maybe. So I think I've got about 50 episodes up there. Um, so you can check it out if you want. Um, friends, thank you for being here. And uh, until next week. Grace and peace be with you.